Good evening. Welcome to the first inaugural session of Torah at Work. This is a series about challenges we from Jews face in the workplace and how we deal with them. Tonight's session is focused on attorneys, but I believe those in the audience and those listening later to the podcast will be able to identify with many of the issues and take encouragement and tips. So I have with me uh, two young successful attorneys. Josh Joel, Ellie Kersner. Um, I thank them for their, you know, both their, their, you know, for all their time, both in coming for the coming hour or so, and also the time we spent preparing and whittle, whittling down the massive amount of very uh, uh, um, appropriate and inappropriate um, material. <laughs> and uh, you know, I know how much um, I'm going to start turning towards you. I know how much your time is. Uh, I know how valuable it is. And I thank you for your, your time, at the same time being very fearful that I'm going to receive a bill at the end. I was going to say, we're billing for this. Yeah. <laughs> Double billing. <laughs> Which we'll get to. So let me briefly introduce you for those uh, here or those who are listening to the recording who don't know who you are. And then we'll just dive right into our discussion. So uh, Josh and Ellie share much in common, but they also diverge on a lot of things, as we'll see. And we'll make Mir Sashem uh, for a great discussion tonight. In addition to being friends and neighbors, they actually worked together at their first job out of law school. Is that right? It wasn't my first job, but it was my second job. Okay. So One of their first jobs out of law school is staff attorneys at the Federal U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. I don't either. Uh, but we're not going to explain it here. Um, they are both editors of law journal, j- journals in law school. They both have five wonderful children and both valiantly served as uh, vice presidents in uh, local institutions. Josh currently at Beth Jacob and Ellie in the past on the TDSA board. They both spent considerable time learning in yeshivas and both entertained the possibility of continuing in uh, learning or teaching before deciding to pursue law careers. Uh, Their backgrounds education are a bit different. Josh grew up in Sandy Springs, is a product of TDSA in Yeshiva Atlanta and went off to study in Israel for 10 years before returning to Atlanta. Um, Ellie grew up in Toronto, Canada, attended, uh, I'm, I'm reading by the way, attended Hasidish Yeshivish uh, um, uh, Yeshivas for Cheder and for high school um, when I was asking them to fill out what their bios might be. So I jokingly wrote that Ellie just learned English a couple of years ago, <laughs> but apparently I wasn't so far off um, because he noted here that the Cheder that he went to only spoke Yiddish and the high school was not too far off. Um, and Ellie then went on to study prestigious yeshivas in the U.S. and in Eretz Yisrael, earning smicha from, uh, from BMG, Beth Medrash Gavoa in Lakewood, and then coming here in Atlanta to pursue uh, what he thought would be a uh, career in the rabbinate. Um, and uh, then after receiving some sound advice that no one ever gave me, uh, he decided to <laughs> attend Emory Law, Emory Law School and uh, here we are. So Ellie is currently working in Associated Swift, Curry, McGee, and Hires. Hires. Okay, thank you. Specializing in insurance coverage and commercial litigation. Josh is right now at Goodman McGuffey, specializing in employment law, and will soon be moving to Greenberg. Traurig. Traurig. A global labor and employment law practice in January. So the setup for the coming discussion. Um, as it has been posted in all the advertising material, is that we will first be dealing with practical issues, then with social issues, and finally with some ethical challenges. 
Uh, we will give time for some of your questions to the live audience at the end, so please keep track of them as we go along uh, because I would like to keep the conversation flowing and then we'll turn to you in about uh, 40 minutes to see if you have any questions from any, uh, any one of these sections. So without further ado, let's dive right into it. Uh, so there's this uh, balance uh, called uh, life-work balance that is discussed a lot in, uh, in blogs and social media um, as a subject of talk, talk shows and podcasts. I saw a statistic that research shows that 66% of Americans are very unhappy with their work-life balance. What that means is that they have two modes in which they operate, at work, and then they have the things that uh, dealing with family and community and hobbies and interests and entertainment, whatever it is, uh, in their life. Um, and the number is highest amongst those in the legal profession, according to, to the studies that I, that I saw. So uh, that's in the general populace. I would imagine, and I've heard, and I know that in the from world, uh, as, as Torah Jews, trying to uh, balance is even more difficult. So Ellie, can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. The reason why it would be compounded for from Jew, obviously, is because our obligations are considerably, uh, considerably larger and broader than the obligations of everyone else. Because in addition to raising a family and earning a livelihood, we're also burdened by other obligations, religious obligations, and cultural obligations that other people don't have. So one of the reasons why people probably struggle with this is because they believe that they have to fulfill all of their obligations completely in order to be a good Jew, a good husband, a good father, and a good employee. But the problem is that mathematically that's impossible because there are only 24 hours in a day. And if you take only six hours of that for sleep, and I think it's people recommend more than six hours for sleep, but even if you would only allot six hours for, for sleep, there would simply not be enough time to spend the time with your spouse, with each of your children, in your job, in davening, in learning, in personal spiritual growth, in relaxation, in social time with, with friends, attending community events and contributing to community endeavors, such as participating in communal organizations, it's impossible to do all of those things in the time that we have in a day. It's just not possible. And so in order to live with being a from professional, you have to first accept the fact that you will not, you will not fulfill all of those obligations completely. And the first step you have to take is to make a list of priorities. Which values do I hold to be the most important? Which the second most important? Which the third most important? And then allot your time accordingly, knowing that you will be fulfilling only a percentage of each of your obligations. And the people that you have obligations to need to understand that as well. And if, they, if they're not on board, then that also would create an issue. Because if your boss expects more of you than you can provide, given your other obligations, or if your family expects, expects you 
to, to give more than you can provide, given your other obligations, then you have to address that. And um, that's, that's probably why uh, there's such a dissatisfaction with what people call work-life balance. So let's, let's, uh, uh, let's hold off for a second on the solutions. We'll come back, we'll loop back around to that in a, in a minute. Um, so you're identifying, you're, you're, you're making a statement that, that mathematically speaking it is impossible to fulfill your obligations. Correct. Right. Um, Josh, do you have any specific, uh, in, you know, um, angles on this or any specific stories or incidents that might show that point? I mean, yeah, obviously this, this conversation comes up in the context of talking to lawyers because lawyers have a reputation of having extraordinarily um, substantial time obligations in our profession. Um, we work hard, we work long, and we, we work all the time. And that's, that, that stereotype is actually true. Um, and, and it's very, very difficult, which makes it much more difficult when you are a, uh, a from Jew and an attorney where we have so many time-sensitive obligations as well. Um, here in Atlanta, for a, a, cl a great example, is it's very, very difficult as a professional to show up at work, as many other people do. By the way, lawyers don't show up at work at 9.30 like they, like they have a stereotype of doing. Uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning when, when Zman Tefillah is only at, you know, 7.45. Um, and so it makes it very difficult to balance everything when your time is limited and you have time obligations. However, I do agree with Ellie that you really have to, um, have to recognize and be okay with the fact that you're not going to be able to fulfill everything perfectly but I'm not as mathematical as Ellie on, on, on this and a little less analytical than Ellie which is why we're sitting here together when Rabbi Foxrunner asked me to do this I wanted to do it with Ellie because we have very different perspectives on life in some ways for me it's it's much more a matter of you have to be emotionally okay with it it's very hard to to when you're going through your day knowing that you're not fulfilling all of your obligations and this is not unique to lawyers this is unique to every from professional you know that you are not fulfilling your obligations to the best of your ability, whether it be in energy or in time, to davening, to learning, to family, to, to work, to socializing, to yourself, it, it can be crushing if you have the emotional perspective all the time that I am just not adding up. I'm not good enough, right? And whereas I don't think that's what Hashem wants from us, I don't think that's what our role is in this world is always to be questioning, are we adding up? So rather, a person has to come to a point where you can be emotionally and spiritually okay with the fact that you are not going to do everything perfectly. How do you choose and prioritize what you're going to do and where you're going to cut corners and how? I agree with Ellie. You have to you have to have uh, some some proactive a forethought in in determining what's important and what's not. So for example. You know, I know Ellie and myself very often are running out of chakras before the end of chakras to get to work. Why are we doing that? Because we not because anybody's breathing down our throats to get to work. It's because we have extraordinary time obligations, and if we come 20 minutes later to work, it means we're going to be 20 minutes later or more home, which means we're, we're going to be stuck in traffic, which means we're not going to see our kids before they go to sleep at night, right? So it, it, it's really coming to, to terms of the fact that, you know what? At this time, maybe the right thing for me to do is, yes, to leave Shachris early in the morning, not stay till the end, because I've got another obligation, which is to my kids who have to know that they have a father and have to know that they have a relationship with that father, and not necessarily just because of work. So that's kind of more my perspective, and I think we agree on that. Agree. Do, you, do you have the opportunity to see your kids every night? No. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends what's going on in the day. How often, like how many times a week do you go a full day without seeing your kids? Um, I would say I see my kids at, in the evenings almost every day. The question was whether I see them every night, 
right? Um, so you're talking to a lawyer, so you got to be careful what you say. Um, and so I learned in yeshiva. So, so, um, but uh, I, I see that. I mean, I do make an effort to to at least interact with every one of my children every single day. It doesn't always happen, um, and that's also okay. One thing actually, Rabbi Feldman shared with me at one point, and I, and it was it was hard to wrap my head around. And I, but in the end, I see he's right. It's more about quality than quantity. It's more about focus than 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 time. Um, you're not going to be able to do everything that you need to do, and this is not just with the children, but it's most it's most uh, it sticks out the most with with children because that's what matters most to us. But when we are doing what we're doing anyway, it's about focus during that time and making sure that when you're you're doing it. Let's say you have the example you gave, which is five minutes with your kids at night before they go to sleep because when I walk in the door oftentimes I leave work 7.30 sometimes at night and I have a chavrus at 8 o'clock right or 8.45 and and uh, and that's before I, started, I was learning at 6 in the morning um, and so so what happens is 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 you get home and you're in a rush and you have to recognize when you walk in the door I want to give each one of my kids some level of attention better to give each of those kids two minutes of focused attention than to than to walk in harried and upset and whatever that I'm not giving my kids enough attention um, and that's, a, that's a, a paradigm shift in terms of the way that you do that. And it doesn't just apply to children. I would say even davening, learning, and your mitzvah, so, mitzvah performance as well. It's about the focus when you're there. When you're there, you've got to be there and completely there. And it might not be all the time that you'd like to spend doing those things. But if you're there and you're completely there, then that, let's say, 45 minutes or an hour a day of lima Torah becomes something very, very substantial and, and very life-changing. Whereas if you're, when you're there, you've got all the other distractions that you bring into the base measures with you or into shul with you when you come to daven or into your kid's bedroom at night when you're saying, when you're saying you know, Shema Namalacha Goel or anywhere, then you're just going to fall apart. I agree 100% that the quality counts more than the quantity. And that what that means is that when you do spend time with, with your family especially, it needs to be with complete focus and zero distractions. And that's, that's why you, when you do set up the, the priority of values and you allocate your time, it needs to be something that's doable that you, that you calculate you would be able to do with total focus, even if that means allocating less time to that thing than you would otherwise allocate. So for example, um, what I allocate is at least, one, at least once a week on Sunday, it's on my calendar, every Sunday for an hour, at least an hour, usually an hour and a half, um, I spend with one of my children. And it's on a rotating basis. So this Sunday, you know, it would be, let's say, Batal's turn. So I know that I'm spending that hour with him. My phone's off. There are no distractions. There's nothing else that I'm doing during that time. The next week, I know it's with Ahuva. That's what I'm doing. So that's a doable thing for me. Given my schedule, I'm able to block out at least an hour every Sunday to do that. And I believe that that has more of an impact than spending two hours that's being interrupted with a phone call and with, and with uh, other foc uh, focus on, so on making other sure things. The quality of time is actually quality. Yeah. Um, have there been times of, of failure where you 100%. tried this method and it just didn't work? So that's what alerted me that I had to reallocate my priorities because I found myself sacrificing that hour when uh, during the time that I was on the Torah Day School Board, which is time that I allocate to the community, and I found that to be, it, it had a lot of unpredictable elements to it, and things would come up in un, at unpredictable times in unexpected ways that I found myself having to deal with 
and it would interfere with other priorities that I had pri previously allocated. And uh, when, that, when that started happening, I realized that there was a problem and it had to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's very easy to fall into, fall into the um, multi-focus multi -focus, um, way, of, way of interacting. And it's not healthy, and it's not ideal, and it, and it should be. And you should, when that happens, that's when you should realize that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. i just add one thing to that, which is, and this is something I, I really just thought of now, and obviously I'm way less mathematical about this and analytical about it than Ellie. Um, I don't do hours here and hours and a half there and, you know, whatever it is. It's, it just doesn't, that doesn't work for me. And again, a lot of this boils down to personality and doing what's right, what works for every individual and what, what works for you as a, as a person. But um, one thing that Ellie mentioned earlier that really triggered something in me is, is really important, and that is one of our most important uh, uh, things as, as fathers and as professionals, but most importantly as, as Jews, is our relationships with our wives and children. And in order to accomplish all of this and to do everything that, that is ob obligated of us and that we want to be doing, it is absolutely critical to have, and you touched on this earlier, very open communication about the challenges with your spouse. Um, and and talk about it because if you don't talk about it then then trigger points and and tension points come up if you're not talking and communicating very very well with each other as to how you're doing it how you're going to function who's going to do what how's it going to happen when am I going to be home from work how's and how are we going to put everything together and what are the challenges that we have as, as a couple and then working as a team my wife is like is like a saint um, when it comes to the, the kids and we know that you know I, I get when I get home early from work some days which is very seldom but if I come home early from work I, I watch what she's doing and it's I'm like in awe of like of what she's doing as a mother for the kids I could never do that and that works for our family you know that, that she's much more focused on the kids in the afternoons and she's amazing at it other people it might be other things there are other ways of arranging their relationships but the most important thing is that we have communicated with each other what our she knows that when, that me going out to learn every day is absolutely critical, right? And we've communicated about that, and therefore she understands that I understand that I know that there are certain things that she needs from me that are absolutely critical, and therefore that communication is the bedrock of being able to function as, in my opinion, a from Jewish professional. So very good, thank you. So we, we, we learned about some of the many challenges, the time constraints. We learned about some. Um, methods like uh, prioritizing, uh, be it mathematically or otherwise, um, and, uh, and we discussed about you know, making the time that we do have to dedicate to these many tasks to make it quality time, and we talked about uh, open communication with those people that we, are, uh, that we are beholden to and that we have close relationships with. So that's, that's a, a great beginning of this part of the discussion, but it's time to move on to the next step. So the second section in, in our session tonight is dealing with the social challenges in the workplace. Um, you know, I, my personal social challenges are limited in, in the walls of this, this building, uh, but you know, we all have that, uh, that episode where we're boarding a plane and, uh, and uh, so, you know, somebody sitting next to me will look at me pitifully as I'm trying to wrestle open the, uh, the, the seals and the packages and, you know, and they'll say like, Rabbi, why don't you just, you know, because I'm a rabbi, just bless the food and, and have a regular meal. What's the problem? So I'm sure there are um, many instances in which this type of thing comes up. The social challenges in the workplace of being a Torah Jew. Uh, Josh, do you have any specific examples of this? Yeah, I mean, so I think this, this, uh, this topic, for, when for everybody has this issue, 
right? But in, specifically in the realm of being an attorney, I think this this issue is particularly uh, it, it has its own kind of um, uh, lens, which is that generally the 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 attorneys that we work with, I certainly work with, and everyone I've been, it's a very intellectual profession, and the people that that are involved in it are intellectually generally intellectually engaged. They're generally politically engaged. They're generally um, very intelligent people who are thinking people and thoughtful people because that's the kind of people who are attracted to the practice of law. So what it actually creates is for a little bit of a different kind of a social dynamic than you would often get in other in other kinds of professions. I don't know if you if you if you were doing a less kind of intellectual or cerebral profession, and that is um, and that is that we end up getting into a lot of conversations with the attorneys around us. They're very curious about about issues of religious observance and issues of of um, uh, of, of who we are and and, and what we represent um, and uh, and it, and it definitely raises sometimes some very interesting conversations I'm an employment discrimination attorney that's what I do for a living so so uh, you know I, I do it, it makes it even more interesting for me because we do with religious issues in the workplace all the time religious discrimination issues and things like that um, and so and there are very and I know that Ellie and I have discussed this a lot we very different approaches in terms of how to deal with religious issues in the workplace my approach generally when it comes to uh, the questions I get them all the time um, I remember uh, my my uh, my second year of law school I sat down next to a, an, an, a person in, in class and I was wearing my tzitzis out and she turns to me and she says what are the you know what tell me what are those uh, strings hanging from your legs um, and I wasn't really comfortable um, talking about it right before class so I said I, I you know I can be honest I can, I can tell you but then I'll have to kill you um, that's, that was not the right approach <laughs> um, and and uh, you know but the, the point that I the I guess the underlying theme that I've tried to do and this is something that I, that that I think is is appropriate is that we're here for a reason we are in the workplace for a reason we're on this planet for a reason which is to inspire the people around us and to make a difference to the people around us and to bring our values to the people around us we're, the Jews are, are oligoyim. We're, we're light to the nations. It's not just a, 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 a you know a, a statement about social justice. It's a statement about who we are as people and actually making a difference to those around us. Now, the way that I think that needs to be done is that we have values that we can bring to the, to, to the world around us. We have values that we can share with those around us. So, for example, um, why do you know the classic question I always get is why do you wear a yarmulke? You know, like what's that thing on your head? Um, especially when you go into court, typically people don't have things on their head in court. You're not supposed to have things on your head in court. Um, when you go into a, a mediation or, or a deposition, it, it's weird, right? And I often get questions about it. So um, so my approach is, well, what, what about the yarmulke on my head can I share with the people around me that will make a difference to their lives? Um, and so the example that I shared with Rabbi Foxbrunner before was it was my first week on the job where I am now. Um, and uh, and that week there was a happy hour at a uh, at a non-kosher restaurant. That's a different subject. And um, and I went to this happy hour with all the attorneys and the paralegals at the firm. And uh, and I'd been there for a week. And I and I walked in. And as I walked in, the whole place goes quiet. It's like, Shoo! and a whole place turns looks at me. And one of the Jewish, who actually later whatever, actually not going to say that, but Jew, one of the Jewish equity partners. Um, of the law firm was obviously delegated by the rest of the employees to ask the question, which was, so I already went quiet and this man looks at me and says, Josh, you know, can you please explain, and I can see his body language was like tense, can you please explain to, to the group why you wear the, the, the yarmulke on your head? So... How many people uh, were there at the time? Uh, Ten, maybe. Uh, paralegals and, and attorneys. Uh, most of them, my firm, there's a lot of nice, you know, it's the South, so we generally have a lot of Christian folks that, that we work with. 
And, uh, and so I, I, I anticipate that he's expecting a very doctrinal answer of, of kind of, uh, well, no, because uh, God hath told me that I must wear this beanie on my head. Um, but, but I decided, you know what? We'll I have Ellie's answer. I, I, right. That would be Ellie's <laughs> answer. I, I have, I have an, I, here I have an opportunity to share a value, a value of what it is that I have. So I said, so I said to, to, to the group, I said, to be honest with you, and I think it, he was taken aback by it, imagine that you're walking around your entire life everywhere you go with a little with a good angel on your shoulder telling you that you got to be an honest person you got to be an upright person you have to be a, a good natured person you have to smile you have to be you have to you have to just be a good person and behave in a way that that is is, is befitting of the fact that you know that there's this angel telling you you got to do the right thing i said this is to remind me that everywhere i go and every everything i do i'm in the presence of god and if i'm in the presence of god that means that i ha- that i have to behave in a way that's moral upstanding and 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 righteous and um and I think that this Jewish attorney was kind of surprised by my answer. And the funny part about it is that then the entire room turned to him and said, so, and I'm going to make up a name, Bob, where's your yarmulke? <laughs> to his response was, it's in the glove compartment in my car. So one of the paralegals says, why is it in the glove compartment of your, of your car? He said, you know, in case I ever go into a synagogue or meet with a rabbi. So she said, well, if you're, you know, if you're going to have it, you should wear it all the time. If you're not going to have it, you should just take it off and then not wear it at all. I don't understand you. And, um, and so I was going to, now it's my first week on the job and I've got the equity partner and me kind of in a tiff about the yarmulke. And so I decided I was going to defuse the situation, whether, again, whether this was right or wrong, that's for Rabbi Foxbrunner to answer. I said, you know, the reality is, you know, Bob doesn't have an obligation to wear this all the time. Don't worry. It's okay. Right. Like, it's okay that he's not wearing the yarmulke, you know, and I just wanted to diffuse the tension in the room and I said and by the way and again Rabbi Foxbrenner can answer this question this is a rabbinic but I said and by the way I'm open to having a discussion if I'm going to walk into a courtroom in South Georgia where you where, where the where the judge is, is going to ask me where the horns under your yarmulke and wearing the yarmulke on my head is going to is going to be a detriment to my client or a detriment to my case or whatever it is I'm open to having the conversation of whether the yarmulke should come off for that particular event what does that mean to me it means I'm going to ask my rabbi right and then Bob turns to me and says no he says I'm telling you right now, as long as you work at this firm, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, the yarmulke stays on. Um, and because you have to be proud of who you are. And it showed me that wow. the, the approach really did reflect and, and have an impact on those around me because they saw this just wasn't some religious ritual. It was something that means something and can mean something to the people around me. That's a great example. Um, Ellie, how would you answer the Tzitzis question? Well, I, answer, I had the same question with the uh, restaurant about eating kosher. And on my first day on the job, where the hiring partner comes over to me my first day on the job in the late morning, and he says, so he says, uh, I and a bunch of the associates on your team will be taking you out to lunch today to this really fancy seafood restaurant. And I said, I'm happy to come along with you, but I'm going to be bringing my peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> that I brought along today because I can't eat the food. He says, why can't you eat the food? I said, because it's not kosher. He says, why don't you eat something that's not kosher? And I said the answer that Josh uh, condemns, which is, which is because God said I shouldn't. <laughs> and then he says, but why did God say you shouldn't? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he says, so you... Now, he didn't ask this, but I saw that he was thinking, so you blindly, you just blindly follow what God tells you, even though you don't know why he's telling it to you? And he asked a similar question, not as, not as uh, blunt, and I said, 
I wouldn't call that blind. I said, I rationally follow what God tells me to do even when I don't understand it. The reason that's rational is because I believe that God knows better than I do about which foods are good for me. And so the same way that when a doctor gives me a prescription, I take it even though I don't understand exactly how the medicine heals my illness, I think God knows more than that doctor. And if God tells me that this seafood isn't good for me, then I just trust that it's not good for me because I think it, it is rational to believe that God knows more about my health than I do, even if I had studied medicine. And so even though I don't understand why this isn't good for me, I think it's rational to, to follow it because God told me, told me not to eat it and it's not good for me. So th this year you managed to give to this equity partner? Yeah, and I give that to anyone who asks me that question. Was he rolling his eyes? No. Um, Would you have noticed if he was rolling his eyes? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason why he wasn't rolling his eyes is because it was a rational response to which, and, and I think that um, I even had to address later on because when he, when he brought me to the restaurant, I gave the same explanation to everyone else there who had the same questions. Um, and I had to even tell them that, that non-Jews aren't obligated to keep kosher because I made them all think that, oh no, wait, but then I shouldn't be eating this. <laughs> but no, non-Jews aren't obligated to eat kosher. And then, uh, which the lends itself to a whole different discussion. Which one? About, about teaching... Why are Jews uh, why commanded non-Jews are not commanded? So I actually addressed that at that lunch, too. <laughs> I, so, I didn't get I, it. <laughs> so they did ask that question. They said, well, why aren't non-Jews obligated? I said, well, just like a doctor gives different prescriptions to different people because of their constitution and their health, their level of health, so when God prescribes different diets for different, for different types of people, that's because their constitutions are obviously different. <laughs> and those constitutions could be either physical, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological, I don't know what. Food has impacts on all different types of areas of a human psyche or, or physical constitution. So, I don't know, again, I don't know why God would tell person A that this is good for him and person B that this other thing is good for him. I don't know, because I don't even know why he's telling me it's good for me. So, of course, I don't know why he's telling you it's, it's not bad for you. So, um, but... So jo Josh is squirming to make a counterpoint here. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, A, is that um, this is why I wouldn't have even uh, gotten on the slippery slope to begin with, um, which is I wouldn't have brought the peanut butter and jelly sandwich to work if I knew that there was a strong likelihood that I would be invited out for a meal at a, at a nice restaurant. Um, but, so but what do you do instead? So I, I try to be more proactive about it and make sure that, that if I know that, or there's a reasonable likelihood that I will be uh, going out for a meal with people that um, – uh, that are at work, uh, either I don't show up to work, or I, <laughs> or or I make sure to have something really nice to bring with me that that looks good and 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 is is uh, is uh, try to be proactive about it. But the point is, is that I think that what this conversation demonstrates is that, and I don't, I'm not saying I disagree with Ellie's approach. I think a lot of it boils down to personality. I couldn't have these conversations because I would I would go so far down the slippery slippery slope to the point that it would just end up being a complete chaleshem. And so you know, but Ellie has got a, a remarkable ability to try to dig himself out of these holes in a way that I could not but which which brings me to, because maybe he's smarter or more analytical than me but the point is is, is that which brings me to the larger point or, which or is less socially aware or, of that. th that's probably whatever I wasn't <laughs> I didn't say it but the point is is that is that is that uh, that might work for him 
because of his personality, his background, and where he comes from. It don't, would not work for me because of my personality and, and my background and where I come from. I couldn't have these conversations. There, so I will, I will come from the beginning proactively to try to make sure that I don't end up in a situation where I'm going down the slippery slope of ultimately having to have the conversation that, you know, we're different than you were, you were whatever, the constitutions are different. Or, and I, I just, uh, I am much more in the practice of avoidance and trying to speak as minimally as possible about issues of religious observance and religious doctrine. I only share what needs to be shared, and I only talk about what needs to be talked about in order, either out of necessity, because I have lines that I'm not going to cross, or um, in order to teach a lesson or a value, or if I'm just asked straight out. But I will not engage in this converse, this type of conversation at work because I just don't feel that I am capable of getting to a point where it's not going to end up being a complete Chil Hashem. So I think there's a danger in his approach. Now, on the other hand, I will, sh- I will also share that my approach is also uh, dangerous. And the danger in my approach, or I don't want to say danger because that's, that's a scary word, but, but, um, but the, the potential pitfall of my approach, which is really avoidance, is that um, Ellie has no problem being very proud of who he is and, and what he stands for in the workplace. He has absolutely no problem. If you are trying to practice a, 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 a approach of trying to avoid these subjects and, and, whatever, and whatever you can do to, to, to move away from it, it, you can fall into the trap of not being proud of who you are. And not being uh, and not being forthright with who you are, and ending up in situations where you where you do have lines that you're not willing to cross, and because you're not as awkwardly talking about them as Ellie would be, um, you're, you end up in situations where sometimes it's more challenging to draw the lines in the sand. But on the other hand, when you do draw those lines, uh, you're very respected for it. Um, you know, an example that comes to mind for me is when my part, the partner I work for, scheduled me for a very difficult to schedule and very important mediation on Simchas Torah. He's Jewish; he doesn't know what Simchas Torah is. How do I explain to him that I'm that? Yeah, after all this work that you've done to schedule this mediation, you scheduled me for it. Um, you know, how am I going to? And by the way, it was like three weeks after I started my job. Um, how, how am I going to explain to him that I, I can't show up? I'm not going to be there. Um, that's very simple. That's very simple because this is a line I will not cross, right? It's not even an option, and therefore it forces me to have the conversation where I walk into his office and say, you know, I cannot do this because this is a Jewish holiday that you might not even know about, that I will not work on this holiday. And my experience has been in the legal profession, especially as an employment attorney and working with other employment attorneys, is that I have had never received any flack or any problem with any time that I've drawn a line in the sand about religious observance, um, with the exception of sometimes with, with other Jews. Um, Non-Jews never give me a problem. Never, ever, ever, ever. Um, the more, no- unfortunately, the more knowledgeless a person is about our beliefs, the the more the more tolerant they tend to be. Um, and I've never had a problem drawing lines in the sand. And of all, I, I seem to recall that you've never had a problem uh, drawing lines in the sand. I had a problem with a non-Jew being distant from you. But you, I, I seem to recall that there was a time there was there was a non-Jew who was a little too close to you. Yes. Um, and uh, I, yes. Can I just, <laughs> before we get to that, can I just add something? I just want to, because um, we're talking about... He's a rebuttal the, time. No, no, no. We're, <laughs> no, we're talking about the, the social danger of my approach. Um, but I just want to justify it for a second. Um, and that and, and if I can't, if I don't feel comfortable explaining my actions, then maybe I should be re-examining why I'm doing what I'm doing. I believe that if I'm confident in what I'm doing, and I believe it's the right thing to do, I should be able to explain that without, without embarrassment, without discomfort, and without shame, and, with, and just and be happy to explain it because I'm sharing truth. I'm sharing, I'm sharing um, 
a, an approach that's rational. I'm sharing an approach that that produces a that that um, exp that is reflective of a better lifestyle that I chose because it's better. And if other people disagree, then I should be willing to hear them out. I should be willing to hear the disagreement and fight back and have a debate about it because because if I'm wrong, then I should change. And if I'm right, then I shouldn't be embarrassed to tell them why I'm right. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, um, that you should never be embarrassed or never, and, and that's the pitfall I said before. The question is how much to share and, and when to share and what's appropriate to share. I'm by nature probably more of a politician than Ellie, and therefore probably that's, that, that goes, that's what it boils down to. Yes. But, but I do agree that that's a pitfall of my approach is that sometimes you need to be very proud of who you are and what you stand for, and that's very, very important. Um, but at the same time, you know, how much do you share and what you share is a different story. I agree with him. You need to be able to comfortable with the debate, maybe not at work. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I had that situation with the... Um, with the Yamtiv of Simchas Torah in law school, at Emory Law School, there was a Jewish professor, and it's always, you know, a Jewish professor who um, had something, I forgot, maybe it was just a class, I don't, know, so I don't know why he made a big deal about it, I think it was just a class, and it was on Sukkot, I think it may have been Simchas Torah, I think it was on the later days of Sukkot, and I emailed him saying I won't be coming to the class because that's Simchas Torah, and he emailed me back saying, never heard of such a thing. I'm Jewish. I never heard of such a thing. Like, no he was, like he was doubting you. Yeah. So I just sent him uh, a link to the Wikipedia page on, on the Yom Tif, and, um, and I said, I'll be happy to explain to you what Simchas Torah is all about. It's a very beautiful holiday. So the next day, so, <laughs> so the next, and this was like a few weeks before, so the next day, we, after class, he comes over to me, he's like, so what, what's this Simcha Torah thing? And I, I had a whole discussion with him about it. I think it's appropriate with a Jewish professor. I, I, you know, I think I had the same thing with with, with a with a with a professor at Georgia State, um, where I went to law school. This might be just more reflective of Georgia State being a more normal place than Emory, um, but but uh, and and not as snobby. Um, you can you can splice that part out. Um, but anyway, but the point is is that is, is that my professor at Georgia State heard about Simchas Torah, and I came to his office. He helped me. He gave me all the time, Jewish professor, um, all the time in the world to, to, to catch up in the classes I missed for Simchas Torah and, and Sukkis, and sat in my office and spoke to me for at length about what Simchas Torah was and what it stood for, and I was very happy to share it with him because he's a Jewish man, and he deserves to know what the Torah tells, tells us, just as everyone in this room does, and on the podcast. So... Okay, let's, let's move on to the next section, the next and final se se section of this session, and then we'll have uh, some time for questions if there are any. Um, so, you know, I, I told you I wasn't going to tell any lawyer jokes, but that, that was like a half hour ago. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start with a lawyer joke, and I want to get Ellie's take on it. Um, and that is, is so this is introdu introducing the third and final um, part of this uh, podcast, this recording. Uh, which is going to be about ethical and halachic challenges. We, we discussed briefly some practical challenges. We discussed some social issues and how to explain ourselves or not explain ourselves. And now we're going to talk about some of the ethical or halachic challenges that we may face. So um, the story goes of a, of a lawyer who dies, and he goes to heaven. Um, and uh, there he meets the, let's call it the Bezdin Shomala, and the uh, you know the 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 best in the the court upstairs, and they and he says the first thing he says to them he says I don't understand this, I'm only fifty years old I shouldn't be here yet, and they said no no no, you're much much older than that, 
and he takes out his birth certificate and he says, look, I was born 50 years ago on this, this, this date. I'm only 50 years old. I deserve to go back. And the court says, well, we judge you based upon your timesheets. According to your timesheets, you're 95 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elie, how do you feel about, about that joke? Is there truth behind it? Is it, is it's it too much? Behind, there's truth behind it in the sense that people do that all the time. Don't share our secrets. But no, <laughs> I, I, but I think it's wrong. I do think it's wrong. And, I, and because of that, I suffer, I suffer in the sense that I need to work much longer than other people who do that because I have to, I have to fulfill the same timesheets, the same amount of time in total, but I have to do it by actually working all of those hours. <laughs> Now there are, there are many people who don't don't do things like that, and I applaud them for it. Um, I was just I had lunch recently with uh, a partner who I once worked for, um, and he he was the managing partner of the firm when I worked. There. I worked there in the summer in between my second and third year of law school, and he was telling me that um, he didn't advance as quickly as his peers because I complained. I brought it up. I brought this topic up to him to ask him for advice. Like, what, what, how do I deal with this? And he says he didn't advance as quickly as his colleagues because he didn't do that, because he only filled out exactly what he did and why he did it. You're supposed to fill out you know, what you're doing at every, in every minute and why you're doing Literally it. Literally every minute has to be accounted for? Every, every six, six minutes, yeah. every, in six-minute increments. That's a universal. Yeah. How yeah. it should be in yeshiva. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so there are two things. One I'm is people. Edit that out also. One is people inflate the time, and then two is what people do is they double bill. So they'll bill for the same six-minute increment. They'll bill one client for one thing and another client for another thing. Now, I don't know whether that's allowed or not, but I know that the I've read the client guidelines of the of the firms that hire us, my clients. And it says specifically in those guidelines that we don't want you to do that. We're paying you to do work for us. And if you're charging us for a certain task, then we don't want you to be doing tasks, a task for another client at the same time. So right. I don't know if other people have the same client agreements as I do, but given my client agreement, I don't think it's right. Can I, can I just add one thing about the last discussion? Because I think it's crucial to get this across. Um, because in yeshiva, what we're trained to appreciate, and it may be true in yeshiva, is that um, time needs to be spent on spiritual endeavors, and any time that is spent uh, uh, just socializing is a waste of time. And that may be true while people are in yeshiva, but I, I do want to point out that, um, in my opinion, and Josh can can chime in with if he agrees. I'm sure he will. Um, but in my opinion, it is critical for from Jews to spend time socializing with people who share their values. And that is because uh, the Rambam and Hilchus Deis, Perak Vav, says, right? It's the way a person's wired. It's the way human beings are wired, is to be influenced by the people that they hang out with. And what we spend all day doing is hanging out with people who don't share our values. It is inevitable when you spend all day with somebody who does not share your values to be influenced by those values. Unless those aren't the people who you consider to be your friends. Unless the people who you consider to be your friends are people who share your values. Then your values won't be corrupted. 
So if you choose people who share your values, then the time you spend with those people, even just hanging out, schmoozing, laughing, joking, eating, <coughs> drinking, is time well spent. It's time that pays off spiritual dividends. And that is not a waste of time. That is time spent in a spiritual endeavor, in my opinion. You gotten off the soapbox? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the, um, I agree with that uh, very much, and I will, I'll add to that, um, and then we can go back to the real topic. I don't know how we did that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I, will, I will add to that that it's very challenging to do that. Um, our social construct and our communal construct here in Atlanta, and, and probably more so in most other communities, um, are, are, is such that it's very, very difficult to develop a chevershaft, a, a, a group, and a sense of communal belonging with other people who share our values and other people who share our perspectives. And it's absolutely critical, in my opinion, and I agree with Ellie 100% on this, and, and more needs to be done to create those social outlets of people who share values, because if your feet and your, and your, and your emotional place is in your community, in Beth Jacob, in Toko Hills, in the base Medrash, in your, the chesed that you do with other Jews around you, whatever it is, if that's your place and that's where you derive your, your energy and your communal energy and your feelings of, of belonging, you'll be good no matter where you go at work. If It's very easy, especially in the kind of work that we do where we're at work for who knows how many hours a week, very easy for your, sus your emotional and spiritual sustenance to come from work. And that's when you fall into the trap of, of, of really not, of, not of, of going down a slippery slope of, 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 uh, of falling into the world that you're in. And I agree with Ellie 100%, and we need to do more, and individuals have to do more whether at the Shabbos table or whether at shul or whether, you know, through, through social programming to create avenues for, for young men and women, uh, uh, both men and women, put it like that, um, to, to have a, the ability to connect socially with each other and develop a communal sense of responsibility for each other. Uh, and that, so that's the place where they're deriving their, their sustenance. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you want to go back to the, yes, the real topic. Yeah. Um, I, on, on the billing issue, I, I, it's, a, it's a big challenge. Um, the only small comment I'll make on that is, and I don't know how this works out, Choshen Mishpat or, or Jewish law, but I do think that there is, it has to be some level of respect and understanding for the, um, for the, uh, the, the business norms. Um, you know, even within the ethical guidelines of, of lawyers, there are lawyers, contrary to popular belief and contrary to the actions of many attorneys, most attorneys that I've come across are very ethically upstanding people. It's drilled into our profession. Um, our profession is all about ethics, which is why when lawyers mess up, it's, you know, it's like when from Jews mess up, everybody knows about it. When lawyers mess up, everyone knows about it because generally it's a very ethical profession. I'm just being very honest about that. That's my, been my experience. Um, but there are ethical guidelines on, on double billing. There are ethical guidelines on you know, uh, uh, business norms and, and expectations of clients of what they'll pay for, what they won't pay for, um, you know, in the world of, of, um, uh, that we live in, which is, which is everything is, is automated. Um, I, can, I can draft a, a release that six years ago would have taken, or, or 10 years ago, let's say 20 years ago, would have taken two hours uh, to draft a settlement agreement. I can do it in six minutes. Right. So do you build a client point one for something that really is a substantial legal document that they should pay me twelve dollars for? Right. No, they should pay me for my time, which is this is this is an hour that should have taken me an hour. So is that OK to build a client an hour for that time? That's something you have to consult the ethical guidelines of the profession. And of course, as from Jews, the ethical guidelines of halacha. That's a, that's two two things. And therefore, I don't know the answers to those questions. I don't have all the answers, but it is a very big challenge. So that's a good discussion about a serious issue that might 
maybe something akin to, to theft or fraud. Yes. Let's talk about something more every day. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, do no evil, there's hear no evil, see no evil. Mm. Have you been in a circumstance, Josh, where you've had to see evil and uh, and how have you dealt with it? That's what we call in law a leading question. Um, <laughs> um, so, I, so uh, 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 listener discretion be advised, as they say on, on the radio. Um, I'm, I'm an employment attorney. I do employment discrimination, and in the past year, as you all know, hashtag me too, right? Sexual harassment has been the big thing that's been on, on the radar of everything. My practice has uh, mushroomed with sexual harassment claims. Um, because that's the kind of work I do. That falls under Title VII. It's 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 sex discrimination, gender discrimination. That's what that's the the underlying law that that governs uh, sexual harassment. Unfortunately, defending sexual harassment claims leads me to to have to, uh, and not just sexual harassment, but a lot of other claims that I deal with. I do religious discrimination, race discrimination. Leads me to have to. Um, be exposed to things that I do not want to be exposed to. It is a crazy world out there, right? And we are so fortunate, so fortunate to be raising our kids in, in the environment we're raising our kids in. And I can't, I can't say that over and over and over and over and over again because I'm exposed to stuff in my workplace that I am just like, whoa, like it's a crazy world. So for example, um, you know, uh, one of my first big cases that was fully assigned to me to manage from beginning to end was a sexual harassment claim involving the uh, sending of um, sending of uh, you know I'm, I'm no holds barred here sending of pornographic images from uh, a supervisor to uh, to a supervisee to to their to their employee a manager to the one who is being managed um, sending sending those those fo- pictures text messaging sexting as they call it um, and and uh, after she was fired for legitimate reasons she then uh, sued them for. Uh, sex dis- um, sexual harassment because uh, she said that he was sending these pictures to her and coercing her to send pictures of um, of sexually explicit images over um, over text message. So the uh, so first of all, the partner looks at me and says, "This is yours. I ain't touching it." <laughs> right? Um, and so I look at this thing, and my biggest my defense, the biggest defense in one of these things, and without getting into the legal uh, mumbo jumbo, is essentially this was voluntary, or or she voluntarily entered into this relationship, and she did it. She wanted it. It's not sexual harassment if it's not coerced right and um and how do i prove that it's voluntary well i prove that it's voluntary by showing the pictures that she sent him right those pictures are not things that you send involuntarily and you don't get coerced to send those things right which involved me having to get an it professional to uh, a, a third party to go into her in, into her phone which they produced us in discovery pull out all of her text messages, all of his text messages, um, and go through them, and I had, and I was exposed to some images that will be seared in my memory for the rest of my life that I never want to think about ever again. Now, what do I do? This is my client. This is my job, um, and I was really stuck in a very uh, challenging situation because let's just say the pictures were not very snias, and um, <laughs> and so and 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 that was a very challenging situation to be in, and I was very new to the job, and it was very difficult for me to go to the, my boss who had told me he's uncomfortable with this, and therefore he's giving it to his underling um, to uh, about this about this. So I I rationalize, and and I, and I don't know if I did the right thing. I'm being very honest. I don't know if I did it did the right thing or I didn't do the right thing. But how is this any different than, for example, a gynecologist or, 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 or an OB doctor who's a, who's a male and, and treating females? It's part of your job. Um, you have a dental hygienist who, who touches you, uh, you know, when, she, when she's working in your mouth, even though, you, you know, how, how is it different? I don't know if that's a halakhically acceptable thing or not, 
but um, I tried to put on my professional hat, my very professional hat, and um, and uh, and treat it with 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 the with the uh, with the gloves that it need to be treated with as a professional, um, while recognizing that at the end of the day. Um, this is a hazard of the job, and, I'm, and the exposure to this type of stuff is not something that I am that I would that I'm proud of, um, and I had I had to deal with it. That's right. you know that's 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 just one small example. I can tell you, you know, many more, but it probably is not that's appropriate a real, a for a family challenge. audience. That's a real challenge because <laughs> it's, it's a real issue and one that that is really your the central focus of your job at that point in time. It was absolutely, and and having and I'll, I'll just add one more piece to that, and and I think this issue is much more. Pronounced in my practice and Ellie's oh, yeah. because it's looking be, at insurance policies. Right, he's looking at insurance policies. I'm looking at. Uh, never mind. Um, so, so, so <laughs> you can splice that off too. Um, the the um, the uh, the other the other very little. The other thing about it is is um, I have a case now now or recently that I've been dealing with that involved um, a sexual innuendo in the workplace. Uh, it's made up. It's 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 a it's not a not a, a real case. It's a lie. I mean, the, the woman who was fired. Is, I mean, it's, it's not true, but. Um, you know, for those of you who, who, who watch Netflix or whatever, he, he made the same types of jokes that you would see on um, from Michael Scott in The Office, um, uh, if you're familiar with that TV show, um, and uh, which which I'm not going to repeat here because they're not appropriate for a synagogue. But um, the claim was that, that he was uh, – it's okay. You went to Hasidic Schrader. You don't know these things. Um, so so he, that the claim was that he was making these jokes in the workplace. It's sexual harassment, um, you know, whatever. i got to be very honest with you. It was funny, very funny. The jokes are funny that were being alleged, and I work with other people who have senses of humor. So the natural reaction is that you kind of roll with it. And in the workplace, the jokes kind of keep going. And we're employment attorneys, so we really shouldn't be making sexual innuendo jokes in the workplace, but we're dealing with it in our work, and it's funny, right? So the jokes are going back and forth. Now, I'm a from Jew. I've got a yarmulke on my head. It is completely and totally inappropriate for, forget about it, from Jew and a yarmulke for anybody, but me especially, given my values, to be engaged in sexual innuendo joke in the workplace. Now, I'm in a room with, a, with another uh, lawyer and a paralegal, and they're making jokes that I legitimately find are very funny, right? How do I control myself not to laugh or to not engage? In this type of banter and activity, it is very, very challenging, and I'm not always successful because I have a sense of humor, also, right? And it's funny. So, but, but um, I, I will say uh, that by by sh not even realizing it, we have the power to make a huge, huge impact on those around us just by the way we behave as we would normally behave. Um, you know, when everybody else is laughing and I'm not laughing, people notice. Right. Um, I just had a mediator tell me today there was some joking around going on during mediation today. And he turned to me and he said, Josh is in the room. Maybe we shouldn't have these conversations. But that just happened to me today. Maybe right? he understood that it wasn't just because you didn't understand. No, it was, be it was he understood because I'm a, I'm a religious person and they know I have a sense of humor because I do. I'm, I let's just say there's a lot of laughing going on in my office. Um, but uh, but you develop a reputation. Uh, if I can share one more story, I know I'm speaking for a long time, but this one is the most powerful one okay, to me. Um, I, I was defending a race discrimination case. I'm still defending a, a lot of race discrimination cases, but the case involved a lot of a very inappropriate language that was used in the workplace. Um, the, the, uh, the, the allegations were that the supervisors were calling the black employees the N-word. Um, we're, we're using very, very nasty language to them. And I'm deposing these guys. We're dealing with very low-level employees, okay? We're not dealing with high, highly educated people. 
The way they speak is absolutely atrociously disgusting. I, I had to learn a whole new language, right, um, in order to understand what they're saying. Because I don't understand these words. And but part of taking a deposition is that you have to nail down the testimony. You have to get it very, very clear. And so, and I'm not going to repeat here in this audience what was said. But the 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 deponent, the the, the witness, um, says, you know, I'm just going to make up names. Mr. Smith, you know, called me a beep 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 beep. Right, right. Or or no, sorry. He says. I was called a beep, 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 but I've got to now nail down that testimony. So I got to repeat back to him, right? Um, who called you a beep, 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 but I can't say beep in the testimony because the, testi the, the record has to be clear. That's my job, right? And if we go to court, we have to impeach a witness based upon this testimony. It's got to be clear, and I've got to know who, what, where, when, how, and I've got to repeat back these words. Anyway, so I was doing this, and I was very uncomfortable because I was saying words that I've never said before, maybe since I was like maybe 15. And, um, and before I left Yeshiva Atlanta, I went to uh, nothing wrong with Yeshiva Atlanta. But um, so anyway, the point is, is that a few weeks later, as we, at the paralegals are, are preparing the, the deposition uh, transcripts when they come in, um, I hear like caterwauling and laughing from the two paralegals who are working on the case. I'm like, what are they laughing at? Like, what's going on? So I go into their office and they're both laughing, like their heads off, like on the floor laughing. And I said, what's happened? They said, look what you said. I was like, what do you look what I said, right? And it was the most amazing thing. She said, I called, the paralegal said I, as a joke, but it was profound. I called one of the partners, one of the equity partners, and I said to her, you will not believe what this case did to a guy like Josh Joel. I would never, have, in, my, in my wildest dreams, have ever heard, imagined that Joshua would ever say these words, would ever emanate from his mouth, right? And therefore, it was very funny for her to, because I was kind of caught and it was really humorous to her. But it was very powerful because that showed me that I am just walking around being a from Jew in the workplace, not even thinking about the way I'm speaking or how I'm speaking and the fact that I don't use foul language because I, that's not appropriate for a from Jew in my opinion, right? And that's making an impact on the people around me that when I had to say those words, it was the most hilarious thing on planet Earth, right? Because that showed that I was making an impact on those around me that this is how a human being, not just a Jew, should and can speak uh, it just in his interactions with people. And it was a very powerful moment for me, and, I, and, I, and I'm actually quite proud of it. So that's, uh, that's my soapbox. I'm off it now. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, sneaking in that last story. I think we're slowly, uh, actually rapidly running out, running out of time. Um, so let's just pause you know, the, uh, the conversation part and turn to the audience to, to field any questions. Um, before that, I just wanted to thank both of you again for your time. There are a lot of points that we have discussed and that we didn't have a chance to, to come out here. And, uh, and I encourage people to speak to you individually and to speak to each other about these issues. They're important things to get out, to discuss, to recognize that, um, that there's a lot of uh, shared challenges that we can overcome with uh, um, you know, coming together with good ideas and giving each other chizik and encouragement. Yeah. So can I, thank I, can, you for I, can I just make a comment on that already? For A Maybe. is I do I do encourage you I do encourage you to ask Ellie about the time that the female lawyer uh, gave me a big hug in his presence in the workplace. Um, that that's so a funny we'll leave, story. Leave that to the audience. That to the audience yeah. That, um, but I also just before before while we're while we're doing this this whole program was that was by Fox Brunner's brainchild, and I, I do I want to recognize the fact that this is an incredibly important topic that most communities are not having these conversations. Everyone's complaining about the problems and the challenges. No one's talking about the solutions. And I do want to thank her by Fox 
Schwartzbrenner for putting this together and the subsequent parts of the series together because I think this is absolutely critical to have these conversations even though we haven't talked about everything we'd like to talk about because it opens up all sorts of vistas for people to be able to share and, and support each other and that's very very critical so thank you Ray Foxburner. Thank you for that yes. and uh, I invite you all to come back January 8th is the next session with anesthetist Ben Crohn and Rivka Neuberger health professionals and they'll be dealing with a whole different set of challenges so uh, please uh, stay tuned for that and now I will turn it over to the audience you have any specific questions? Yes, Nathaniel. Yes, hi, thank you for doing this. This is something that I've been, I actually, Rabbi Foxburn and I spoke about this this summer. I was like very much looking forward to this series. Um, you both spoke about how you handled socially the different aspects uh, and you know, getting into conversations, not getting an avoidance and so forth around the whole uh, being Jewish issue. Um, Neither of you, I'm just, I noted this because I was thinking about how do I handle this sort of thing. So I'm curious to hear both of your perspectives on this. Uh, neither of you said um, uh, something to the effect of like, well, um, as a religious Jew, my, my, what, what you call the Old Testament is, is we, we call the Torah, and that's, that's what we follow, and it says in there so, such and such, either with regard to, I know, Keep us finished, but like with kosher or something like that. I did. And That's exactly what I did. You said, well, my understanding yeah. or my hearing of what you said was like that. So what I what I'm trying to uh, uh, pull out of the way I'm expressing this is um, you said with regard to like that God said, but from the perspective of the non-Jew, that's where this kind of you know, going down a certain path because then they hear God and they think themselves. So when someone asks me, um, I, I'll say it in the way that I phrased it because yeah. that's my Bible, not theirs. And I was just curious if you both could speak from your own perspectives about oh, yeah. that approach versus the others. Because I'm trying to oh, learn yeah. how to handle in my own way. And yeah, like, so there's a partner in my firm um, who every, about once a month, he takes me to lunch and uh, he insists that we go to a kosher place and um, that it ends up being a two and a half hour lunch every time because um, you're not billing for right or double billing for. and this this partner is actually in charge of enforcing the billing requirements so this is <laughs> fascinating but he's out to get you <laughs> you don't even realize it <laughs> but but he but he drills me down on these things all the time like we so recently um he, he challenged me on that. He's like, what do you mean? God says you can't eat it? We're, you're not a prophet, right? I mean, what do you mean God says? God talks to you? How, how does God communicate that to you? I said, he communicates that through the Torah. Um, I said, you're familiar with the Bible, so if you, uh, so it says in the Bible, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I quoted him the actual chapter and verse, but I said, do not cook a, goat in its, a baby goat in its mother's milk, right? You're familiar with that? Yeah, he was familiar with that. He says, but that has nothing to do with what you're talking about, he says. That's talking about cooking a goat in its mother's milk. What does that have to do with, what does that have to do with eating uh, seafood? Like what, I mean, in, in this case, it was, uh, you know. Uh, so I said, I said, okay, when, when it comes, and I, I, he knew, he was familiar, actually, with the fact that land animals, there are certain criteria for sea animals, there are other criteria, but what's this whole thing with dairy and meat? That's what he was hitting me on. Dairy and meat, where does it say dairy and meat? Just says cook, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. So I had to explain to him. I said that 
the written Bible comes along with an oral explanation. He says, well, where do you get that from? I said, we got that from the same place we got the Bible, at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was when we were, where we received the Bible. We also received the oral explanation of the Bible. He says, why, do you, why does it need an oral explanation? I said, because there are many things. I said, first of all, I don't need a reason to tell you why it needs an oral explanation. We got it. I mean, even if we didn't need it, we got it. So that's number one. But number two is the Bible itself requires an oral explanation because there are certain things in the Bible that prove that there was more to it than just the written words. For example, talking about kashras, right? I mean, kashras itself. It says, you should eat it kasher tzivisicha, like I commanded you. Right? Where, where, what do you mean? You should, you should slaughter it, like I commanded you. That's what it's talking about, the, the law to slaughter an animal before you eat it, even a kosher animal. You have to slaughter the kosher animal before you eat it. How do you slaughter it? The way I commanded you, it says. But nowhere in the Bible does it say how to slaughter the animal. So where did God command that? So this shows you that there was obviously an oral explanation that went along with it in which God commanded us how to slaughter the animal. And so if it's not slaughtered the proper way, even if it's a kosher animal, we can't eat it. So that's, that's, that's just when it comes to slaughtering. But once, once I've shown, once I've established that there is an oral explanation for the Bible, then that same oral explanation can tell you when it says, don't cook a, a goat in its mother's milk, it really means don't eat any meat with any milk. Now, we did get into derisa, it's cooking, it's not darabonim that it's not eating even when it's cold. We got into that. But this is, this is the, 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 my comment. On, my comment on that is 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 oive. The the the, the um the, the, the I would never have gotten into this conversation because I don't think that. And to answer your question, um, I, I don't think it's it's appropriate. First of all, um, second of all, I mean, unless the person's really engaged in it and and they're really pushing it, which you might, which is fine. I'm not I'm not judging Ellie. I'm not. I, don't, I wasn't there. But this but time. for for me this time, I judge him a lot of other times. Um, the the uh, my my answer to your question is I would never get into the conversation of Old Testament, New Testament, Christianity, not Christianity, Judaism. It's not even something I would generally, unless it was specifically brought up by someone on that topic and they brought it up. Because again, my approach really relates to let's let's talk about universal values. What are the universal values that can be derived from the things that I'm doing? So, for example, you know, kashrus is a little bit, to be honest, is a little bit more of a difficult one to, to deal with on that. But um, but there are universal values about you know. I had a, an attorney come into my office this week and he told me, um, very nice guy, and he says to me. Um, uh, uh, because I didn't go to the holiday party this year because the holiday party was on Friday night, which was, come on, I'm not going to say what I think about that, but um, it was a bracha. And, um, and so I didn't go to the holiday party this year, and he came to me on Monday and he said, you know, what's the deal with the holiday party? Do you, could you not even take an Uber? Could you not drive? And I explained, and he asked me the question, you know, f why can't you drive? I said, well, internal combustion is fire, and fire is one of the things that's, you know, forbidden oh, to do. Oh, on, you're on, slipping into my uh, track. Right, so I slipped into his track. So, so I didn't get into the, into, the, into the depths of the conversation. But what I shared with him is that, that the Sabbath, Shabbat, is the most beautiful thing because I spend the entire day disconnected from my electronic devices and from, and I shared to him the universal concepts that we all see on Facebook. Everyone's like, we've got to disconnect, disconnect, right. disconnect. Well, guess what? You know, this guy, his name is Bert. Guess what, Bert? I disconnect every week and I spend time with my kids, my family, and that's something that everybody can learn from and everybody can do. He turned to me after that conversation, after I shared with him those universal values, and he said to me, Josh, that must take so much self-control, and I have so much respect for that. Um, and that's something that he's going to now take away from, from that conversation, a value that he can then bring to him. And he said, and by the way, you know, oftentimes at night, you know, I'll, I'll put away my, my phone, 
you know, so I can spend time with my wife and we turn off our phones. So again, it's not Shabbos, but it's taking the universal value of, of, of the quality of, and focus of time that Shabbos gives us and applies it to something that a non-Jewish person can relate to. I don't, is that... And I, I agree with you that when there is a universal value to be applied, you should do that. Maybe you just get lost in the weeds. <laughs> it's just when they ask me a direct question about Kashras. If they ask me a direct question, I, it's a question I will answer. Okay, Nathaniel, thank you for the question. And we're going to stop the tapes from rolling. Thank you. Have a good night. And uh, you're all welcome to stay. And if you want to leave, that's fine. I just think this is extraordinarily entertaining. Um, and it was, we were supposed to talk about it, but I have to talk about it. Um, so this attorney is a fantastic human being. I went to law school with her. It's actually the same person I told I would kill if, if, uh, if I told her about the census. It, happened, it was the same person, by the way. But anyway, so, so, we went, so when she left my firm and went to his firm, you know, she, we, she asked us if we could go out for lunch. So we went to Fuego Mundo out for lunch together to have a kosher lunch with her. And it was like the most – if you would have taken a video camera and videoed this scene, Right, every difference of opinion that Ellie and I have about how to approach non-Jewish people in the workplace, both socially, um, both ethically, in every single way, came out during this lunch, and it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. It was right, the, it, was, it, was, it was the funnest lunch we ever had. So, for for example, you know, you know, she was very respectful, and she gets up. We go. I get up to wash my hands. Ellie gets up to wash his hands. She gets up to wash her hands, right? <laughs> and she goes and she looks at the at the you know Fuego has that spigot you know doesn't really have a and she sees the cup. So I'm watching her, and Ellie and I sit down. We, we're watching her, and she's pouring water out of the spigot into the cup and washing it. She can't figure out. She sits down. She turns out. She's like, she's like. I don't understand. She's like, what is this? I said, so I said you know, to tell you the truth, I'm just letting you know you contaminated that cup for everybody now, right? And, uh, and I make it into a joke. And I said, well, I do, I do appreciate the fact that you're trying to show respect for what, but I want you to know, like, earth to so-and-so, like, you're not Jewish. You don't have to do this stuff. We don't, you know, we're okay with you, you know, not doing the thing, whatever. Anyway, during that lunch, the topic of Shadduchim came up. Um, and Ellie, and she asks about our wives and, and how, we, how we met our wives. And Ellie starts telling her about, about um, the only way I could describe You can describe how you described it. But, but it, was, it was like the most horrible explanation of the Shidduch system. Uh, he essentially made it sound, in my opinion, like basically we purchase our wives in the slave market. Right? And, and, and he's, like, he's like, yeah. And then, and then this one approaches the, 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 um, the, the matchmaker and, and they give them a resume of all the different things. And another one gives a resume of all there. And, and, and I'm like, oh, actually, my God. Oh, my gosh. It's actually is. a very rational system. It's very, it's, okay, okay, very rational but, system. But the way he was describing it was just horrible. Right? So I interrupt. I'm like, Ellie, can I just be – I just want to say, this, you're making it sound like a slave market. Right? This is not a slave market. And I start sharing with her the universal values <laughs> of how, what you can learn from the Shadduchim system. <laughs> it was a very interesting conversation. And that's when, as we left, um, she gave me a big hug. And Ellie turned, and this is the one I've known for six, seven years, and she hugs me a lot. Um, and I just do like the dead fish, you know, thing. <laughs> clearly, very uncomfortable, and I don't hug back. And Ellie, and Ellie turns to her and says, uh, as she's hugging me, and says, "You know, I'm making up a name. You, you, you know, Sarah, um, Christine. You know, Christine. Um, that makes him very uncomfortable." <laughs> and she turns to me and goes, "You know, Ellie." She says, "Elliot." I noticed he's very stiff and never hugs me back. <laughs> so I said, well, and I'm like, I don't know, what do, I, what do I do now? And so I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I try to only have, have, you know, touch my wife and, and it's special and all the universal values. And I, he texts me when he gets back to where he says, I gave her a whole sheer on, on, on Nagia and Derchiba and this and that the whole way home. She was fascinated. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to look at her again. <laughs> anyway, that's... that's uh... She asked me, is there, a religious, <laughs> is there a religious reason why he's uncomfortable? I said, yes. 
She and, said, and, what's and, the religious? <laughs> so my religious reason would be that that I preserve the 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 art of touch for my spouse, right? And 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 the value that we have for our relationships with our spouse and the holiness in that relationship is so profound that I don't engage in any, which is true. Ellie gives her a sheer on on all the ins and outs of of Nagia. That's not what I would have done, right? Now, she happened to be someone who appreciated it. I, I do admit that. But I'm going to be very interested to hear what she has to say to me next time I see her. But, um, yeah, that's, that was a that was a Well, she, she did say at the end of my whole show that she will still hug you again next time. Yeah. So that proves, by the way, proves that Ellie's approach simply does not no, work. She found the loophole in one of the Piscum. <laughs> this good. is danger. One, more, one last question. This is a very, very dicey issue, and, and especially I can, I can share it both from my personal perspective and also as, as an employment attorney. This is what I do for a living. Um, it's a very, very dicey issue. Um, I have never experienced in my life any outward, um, uh, for sure, any outward issues with the fact that I am a religious Jew and therefore I did not get a job. I don't know what's going on in people's heads. What I do know, and I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to say this. It's not, I'm not trying to brag. Is what I do know is that w when I, uh, you know, as you know, in, in law school, your most important year is your first year, right? When I ended my first year in law school, number seven in the class, right, the top five percent of the class, right, I didn't get any of the summer jobs that everyone else got, right, who were ranked way, well below me, right? Is that because I'm a religious Jew, or is it because I'm just look like a weirdo? I don't know, right? Because I'm a religious Jew. I'll tell you one fascinating thing, and I think this is something really important for all of you to hear, is that, is that I, I did get one callback um, from one of the big firms at the time. The person who interviewed me in the initial interview was a Russian Jewish immigrant. She was not religious, and I sat down, she looked at me, she saw the yarmulke on my head, she said, do you go to Beth Jacob? And I said, yes, I do. She said, when, when I want you to know that when my family immigrated from the former Soviet Union in the early 90s, um, and uh, we're sponsored by Federation. Uh, our first landing point, our sponsor was Congregation Beth Jacob, and we have forever been indebted to this community for what you've done for our family when we got here in Atlanta. And she was very open and very sweet about the whole thing with me. And of course, that's the one I got called back on, right, for, for subsequent interviews. And none of the other ones did, right? Even though I was ranked way higher, you know, than anybody else. It could just be because I'm a weirdo and, and they don't want to, they don't want to like, you know, uh, he's nodding his head and they don't want to talk to me because I was awkward in the interviews or whatever it was. Um, the last point is, uh, you know, I'm switching jobs shortly um, and you asked the question of when should you bring it up. Um, that's a very challenging issue because as soon as you bring up from, I'm talking from, as putting on my lawyer hat now, as soon as you bring up an issue of religion in an interview process, it puts them in a situation where they, that you're now a protected class and they, and they can't not hire you for that reason. It doesn't mean they're not gonna find another way not to hire you because they don't wanna deal with that issue all the time and they'll find other reasons not to do it. The recommendation is not to bring it up in the interview process and only bring it up once you have a commitment from them that they're going to hire you. Um, I'm a retired nurse and there have been jobs I haven't been able to take. And I've gone to Rabbi Feldman many times because if a job requires everybody to work on Shabbos, 
then they're not discriminating against you. Right. Mm -hmm. So there have been jobs I just, you know, couldn't take. Right. I mean, in general, everybody was respectful, da 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 da, and all that kind of thing you're saying. But there, but are, jo there are jobs that you will, as a from Jew, there are jobs that you cannot do. And there's no, the, I mean, again, lawyer hat, again, maybe take this off. You know, you're not here to hear from a lawyer, here from Josh. But, you know, um, and by the way, this fascinating thing I've learned recently that the reasonable accommodations requirements of, of the religious discrimination laws were actually put in because of Nathan Lewin. Uh, from uh, attorney who, who clerked on the Supreme Court, um, and he um, and as soon as you raise an issue of religion in the workplace, of the fact that I'm a from Jew and I can't work on Shabbos, they have an obligation to try to make a reasonable accommodation that will allow you to to do that work. But like a position like a nurse, which is necessary, that it would cause undue hardship or or whatever it is in order for them not to, in order for them to accommodate you, they don't have to accommodate that religious obligation. However. For example, leaving early on a Friday, if you have to leave early on Friday to make it back for Shabbos and you can make up that time on Motzei Shabbos, they need, to, they need to allow you to do that, unless there's something absolutely critical that has to be done at 6 o'clock on Friday afternoon that you have to be there. So when do you raise it? The recommendation is not to raise it during the interview process. I, did, I actually didn't do that this t past time around. I actually did raise it during the interview process because it was a bit of a different situation um, because that puts the, puts the employer on, on a very... Um, a very awkward kind of defensive situation with going into it. Most people recommend ra being open. I would recommend very strongly, again, putting on lawyer hat, be very, very open and communicative about the issue, but only once you have a commitment from them about a job. So, yeah, I don't think people certainly don't openly in the legal field uh, not hire people because they can't work on Shabbos, Yom Tif, or because they look religious, but I, I do suspect that there are in implicit rejections of offers that of uh, rejections of applications that are based on on considerations of frumkite. So, for example, um, in my first year of law school, when we were applying for summer jobs, the top law firms I'm talking about the top five percent in the country. So they based the, who gave the people they gave their initial interviews to was based on solely on grades and class standing. So if you were the top 5% of the class, you got an interview. If you weren't, you didn't get an interview. But then the second round was based on their impressions from the initial interview. Now, it just happened to be at one of these, one of these firms that I interviewed in um, that I looked around. At, well, I don't remember whether this was the first or second series of interviews. But I remember sitting, sitting at the door in the waiting room where all the people who they were going to interview were sitting looking around and I noticed that all the men were over six feet were at least six feet tall they all had a big a big mound of hair and they all were wearing dark blue suits and red ties all of them and I looked at myself and like wait I'm under six feet and have a, and they're all clean shaven too I have a beard I don't have a full head of hair I have a yarmulke and oh no, my, my tie was not red. <laughs> no, he's wearing a red tie. Now I'm wearing a red tie. I learned my lesson. And he's wearing black. I, I learned my lesson. I knew I knew Herbert Foxrunner would have bias against him.